Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we begin with a book segment talking to James Shires about his new book, The Politics of Cybersecurity in the Middle East. And then we have a special topical segment focused on the crisis which has erupted around Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, first, we talked to Cinzia Bianco about the responses of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar, and the Gulf Cooperation Council. And then we talked to Howard Eisenstadt about Turkey and its response to the crisis. Thank you so much for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by James Shires of Leiden University, author of the new book, The Politics of Cybersecurity in the Middle East, just published by Hearst Publishers and Oxford University Press. Uh, James, thank you so much for joining us again. It's lovely to be here, Mark. So tell us about this book. So the book is a product of over eight years of research on cybersecurity issues in the Middle East region broadly, and specifically in Egypt and the six states of the Gulf Corporation Council, the GCC. Uh, the overriding puzzle motivating this book is that cybersecurity is a massive issue in this region. Of course, it's now a high priority issue for states and businesses worldwide, but many of the most significant cyber incidents have occurred in this region, both stretching out back to the last decade and beyond. But when we look at the issue of cybersecurity in this region, what comes up not is just its importance, but also its fragmentation, the different understandings people see when they attach the label cybersecurity to an issue, right? Well, from one side, we get things like state cyber attacks from the famous Stuxnet operation targeting Iranian enrichment centrifuges to later ones in the Gulf states, right? These are issues almost of cyber conflict, right? Seeing war and military conflict move into cyberspace. On the other hand, what you see are new modes of repressive or authoritarian activity coming into cyberspace as well. And here you have ideas like uh, the adaptation of the concept of cybercrime to include speech online, social media spaces, things like that. And cybersecurity is the criminalization of online activities that are not hacking in any sense of the word, but they're not desirable to the current regime. And when you go further in, you can also see an alternative conception of cybersecurity that is focused very much on human rights, trying to protect the individual against these forms of authoritarian practices by states and associated companies. We've all seen the leaks of the Pegasus papers over the last year, the Israeli spyware company NSO Group being just the tip of the iceberg, where you have a large industry focused on penetrating devices of journalists, distance, and so on. Now, this kind of cybersecurity issue is really a threat to individual privacy and other human rights. And then finally, an uh, issue which is very live now, you see things like disinformation um, operating both within states, but also transnationally across borders. States trying to influence the course of politics in other states using cyber means. So when you look at cybersecurity broadly conceived, what comes across is just sheer diversity. And the puzzle motivating this book is how do we make sense of that diversity? These are contradictory concepts. They don't include the same actors, the same activities at all. So the politics of cybersecurity in the Middle East has to provide an account or an explanation of how we got here, how we came to see this diversity in the field. And that's what this book does. So you have this interesting concept of moral maneuvers where you, you really, you're looking at the framing of these various issues as cyber and as security. 
And uh, it really brings out, I think, this um, the tensions that you just identified among across these different sectors. Tell us a little bit about this and you know where this concept comes from and what work it does for you. Sure. So moral, moral maneuvers is the framing concept of the book, and it's the core thread I take uh, throughout the different chapters. And the key insight behind it is that cybersecurity is often seen as a very technical issue, right? There's lots of issues about how to write code adequately, how to uh, protect yourself, how to download the right updates, things like this. Um, but actually, cybersecurity is just as much a value-based issue, in other words, a moral issue, as it is a technical one. Cybersecurity professionals and experts decide who cybersecurity should protect from what, right? Who is a threat and who is a victim? Who is a target? And these are questions that are very value laden. Right? If you see a state as a target, if you see individuals and their rights as a target, you come up with a very different account of cybersecurity overall. And so this idea of the moral aspect of cybersecurity is something I want to capture in the book overall. Now that's the moral side, right? The maneuver side says, well, actually, when we look at the diversity of cybersecurity in the region, this diversity results from the strategic reinterpretation of the term, of the label and the practices of cybersecurity for the benefit of specific actors. So it's not just a morally infused discourse or space, it's also a very strategic one. And when we see states and companies and uh, NGOs and other organizations use the term cybersecurity for their own ends, this is a strategic maneuver. And so when I combine the idea of the value-laden aspect of cybersecurity and its use for strategic benefit in both authoritarian and commercial settings, this is when you get to the concept of moral maneuvers. Now, I have two sort of facilitating conditions on when moral maneuvers can happen. And this applies not just to cybersecurity, but for our political science audience, more broadly as well. Mm -hmm. And these, the first one is that it happens when an issue is really high priority, right? It's something that is recognized to be important worldwide. Right? And in this case, for the theoreticians, you might have the idea of symbolic capital being the motivating concept. You have it drawing lots of people in saying, oh, I recognize this as cybersecurity. This is a big problem, right? That's an mm -hmm. instinctive association you have when someone hears cybersecurity. It's a high priority issue. But it's also what I call to be esoteric. It's not easily un understandable by the layperson, right? You need someone to interpret it, someone to understand it and make it accessible for everyone else. And that means that cybersecurity experts play this really key role. They are able to tell people to communicate to decision makers and the general public, well, this is what you should focus on. This is what the threats are. And so the moral maneuvers are really focused around this relatively small group of cybersecurity experts in the region, in the Middle East, who are able to really take cybersecurity in different directions. Well, that actually, you know, leads to a next question. Before we get into the actual uh, substantive chapters, tell us a little bit about the research itself and how you kind of got access to, uh, to, to these various domains. Sure. So I was very interested and intrigued in uh, cybersecurity in the Gulf states and Egypt. And at the start of the research project, I just wanted to understand who was working on this, right? It was a space where no one really paid any attention to it. You know, the high profile things were in Russia or China or the US, right? So that was a big cybersecurity community. So my starting point was saying, well, who is the cybersecurity community in this region? And what you see is uh, they go to the same conferences, um, they work for the same government agencies or companies and often go in between the two. Some of these are big tech companies, some of them are more specialized companies. So what I did first is uh, I 
looked at the different conferences. I cataloged, I think, more than 200 conferences and speakers and attendees and things like that. And it came up with an idea of roughly who was involved in the community. And then during my fieldwork for my doctoral research, spent a lot of time in this community. I attended the conferences. I uh, conducted interviews with many of the people I met there and others that they introduced me to. And I just hung out generally, often at the time, some scientific events were happening as they were in their office. So I'd see some of them maybe, you know, leave the office and say, sorry, I'll come back later. We've just got to deal with an incident or something. So it's really trying to capture how these people thought of cybersecurity in their own ways, and then trying to make that into a theoretical and an overall, overall argument. But it's really based in uh, this close contact, this experience with the community in the sort of, you know, 2015 to 2018 period. And also with like defense contractors and the like, and uh, there's a real political economy aspect to it as well. And there's a there's a line in there which jumped out where you have one of your uh, companies basically saying, "Yeah, we could sell this to other people, but the Gulf pays ten times as much for the same thing." Yeah, I think this is something that a lot of people um, don't necessarily appreciate, but comes out very starkly in the Gulf states, right? And this is a cybersecurity is very much an issue of the economy and the digital economy, right? There, there is a large. Um, body of thought on the political economy of the Gulf states, their idea of rentier states and bringing in expertise and goods and services from abroad, right? This goes back to the formation of Saudi Arabia and its, its attempt to capture um, you know, energy from the land and um, the oil around it. And this now occurs in cyberspace as well. You have the big US or European defense contractors really trying to update their um, arms agreements, their arms trade agreements, and move into cyberspace, but competing with smaller, more nimble IT firms, right? So they're all going for the same slice of the pie. They all see this as maybe quite a lucrative market, especially um, for some of the cybersecurity firms. Um, and they're really building on that to try and uh, sell some of their systems, some of their, some of their um, kind of protective systems to, to counter state cybersecurity threats. Which also gives them every incentive to inflate those threats. It does indeed. Um, and I do go into this, especially in the idea of uh, state conflict, when we have um, this specter of the Iranian cyber threat really looming over the Gulf states after the Saudi Aramco attacks in 2012 and further beyond. But then you also see, and this is fascinating from my point of view, is you see experts also push back against this threat inflation. Some of them say, wait a minute, that's taken too far. Um, so you have a clear threat inflation. You say this Iranian cyber threat is destructive. It is um, really uh, dangerous and it's going to not only wipe data but stop critical infrastructure from working. And others say, well, maybe in some cases, but in others, we really don't see that. So there's disagreement within this expert community as well. Well, let's talk about that sector then, the, the cyber conflict sector. And, sure. um, and, and so you begin with this 2012 attack um, and you know, kind of trace it out from there. So tell us a little bit about that and how you see the evolution of the cybersecurity concept in, in, in that kind of very specific domain. Sure. So the chapter starts with uh, this incident in Saudi Aramco, the uh, national oil company, in 2012 in the summer, uh, when it was subject to what was then seen as one of the biggest wiping attacks of all time. Right? So um, it was malware that went through the business networks of the company and pretty indiscriminately wiped data on these systems. Um, there's some fun stories to the side of this, which are things like, you know, uh, Aramco is such a massive company that it had to buy a whole new set of hard drives to replace all the systems. That meant that the global price of hard drives went up um, because it was such a massive um, investment in its own technology. But then what happens after that is that 
the Gulf states begin to take cybersecurity as a state conflict issue seriously. So people see this as a landmark event. Most of the people I spoke to saw it as a wake-up call, right? They sort of say, well, beforehand, nothing was really going on. This was a moment where everyone sat up, sat up and took notice. Um, this was now, before, this was right after the Stuxnet attacks. Yeah, so the Stuxnet happened, well, um, it was discovered in 2010 with various versions before that. Uh, and then that's an issue of obviously US, Israel, and Iran as the geopolitics of nuclear proliferation. And then you have the Gulf states saying, well, actually, we could also be targets after the Saudi Aramco attack in 2012. Um, but there's a real shift here, right? And this is what I capture in the uh, chapter is that Stuxnet focused on uh, uranium enrichment through centrifuges, right? So it, it was destruction of um, physical items, right, these centrifuges, stopping them working, meaning they had to be replaced. The kind of destruction that happened in Saudi Aramco was not physical. It was not connected. It was not targeting the uh, industrial networks, the networks that controlled the oil systems. It was targeting the business networks. So this is destruction of logical kind. It's wiping your data, of course, immensely valuable data, but data nonetheless. And so you have this shift of um, the meaning of destruction going from a physical critical infrastructure one to a more amorphous idea of destruction of data deletion in this wiping software. And then these wipers begin to multiply, right? They carry on going. After 2012, you see the original wiper, which was called Shamoon, come back a few years later, comes back at the end of 2016. It comes back again a couple of years later at the end of 2018. And more and more different Iranian cyber threat groups begin to use similar kinds of wiping tools in their espionage and other campaigns. So this is really a big, a big and growing problem for the cybersecurity community in the Gulf. Now, this idea of destruction, um, coupled uh, with the broadening of what counts as critical infrastructure, right? Not just oil, but also any other kinds of um, central uh, sectors of the economy, means that these Iranian wipers are really overhyped, they're overportrayed as an existential threat to the Gulf states, and that's something that comes out of the cybersecurity community. It's facilitated massively, not only by experts in the Gulf, but also those in the US as well, right? This is when the negotiations are going on with the Iran over the nuclear program. And there's a real worry about Iran responding asymmetrically. So US cybersecurity experts say, well, cyber is clearly an asymmetric tool. We need to be really worried about Iranian cyber responses to any kind of nuclear step that we might take. And some of these are taken more seriously, others go pretty much well beyond the pale. They exaggerate a threat out of all proportion based on very little data, and they're sort of essentially quietened down. They're, they're um, uh, sort of sidelined by the rest of the community. But you see this real threat inflation going on tied to shifts in the idea of destruction and what it means for a cyber attack to be destructive. Mm -hmm. Then there's other kinds of cyber attacks, like hacking attacks. And you talk about hack and leak um, scandals, which uh, really have proliferated uh, not just in uh, the Middle East, but globally. But there's some pretty, uh, pretty well-known uh, Middle East ones that you talk about. Yeah, so we have, um, yeah, shifting to the, uh, the large chapter of the book, you, know, you have uh, focusing on uh, the kinds of uh, leaking and uh, scandalous information that is uh, released in the, in the region. Some of these are things like Saudi cables. Some of these are um, associated with uh, supposed activist hacking groups uh, like the Yemen Cyber Army, right? Very much in uh, quotation marks there. Uh, it's still a, a very shady group. And then you have uh, more recent models and uh, 
associated with the Gulf crisis, right? And this last chapter of the book focuses on what happens in and around 2017 and the Gulf crisis when you have hacks and leaks on both sides trying to discredit either the quartet or um, Qatar itself for audiences in the region and crucially for policy audiences outside the region as well, right? And this very much means the political scene in the US as much as it does in the Gulf. And this is everything from uh, a UAE ambassador, Yusuf Oteba's emails to, you know, personal photos and, uh, and information about uh, Al Jazeera journalists. Um, it's pretty it, wide ranging. Exactly. And this becomes almost a pretty standard um, tool of contentious or competitive politics between the Gulf states, right? And what I um, also highlight here is it again, it's just as much commercial as it is state-based, right? Just as we saw uh, these um, commercial actors defining cybersecurity as an issue of state conflict, when we see cybersecurity as an issue of leaks and foreign interference and disinformation, these are lobbyists, they are PR companies, they are disinformation firms, some of them in the US and Europe, some of them outsourced to India, for example. Um, but these are all being tasked by actors in the Gulf states, by the states themselves, as much as it is sort of an issue of states. So we have to think about this broader industry of disinformation that's going on and leaking, as well as we have to think about the states acting behind it. Now, one of the most high profile parts of cyber conflict uh, or cybersecurity in the region now, and one you would talk about in a different chapter, is the surveillance and um, the various exploits, uh, hacking into people's phones and, and all of that. And uh, you have some really interesting analysis in there, not only of the, the extent and the nature of the surveillance, NSO group, Pegasus, and all of that, but also the way that uh, NGOs uh, like Citizen Lab were able to turn it into an issue of cybersecurity. Talk us through this a little bit, since this is such a major part of what people think about in terms of cybersecurity these days. Sure. It's um, funny to see us now talking about uh, spyware and targeted surveillance with two or three years of NSO group revelations behind us, and before that with Finn Fisher and hacking team and the others, right? And now no one would be surprised if you went to them in the street and said, you know, this is a cybersecurity threat to your individual privacy. It's taken as red. It's understood as almost obvious. It's something too obvious to say. But actually I go back and say, this is not an obvious thing. This is something that was constructed, that was developed strategically, especially by NGOs such as Citizen Lab, in order to counter this kind of spyware and surveillance. And you see people like the director of Citizen Lab, Ron Deber, you know, talk about explicitly saying, we want a human-centric version of cybersecurity, not one that protects states and organizations, but one that protects individuals and their human rights. And so that's uh, laudable, it's a normative uh, aim for cybersecurity, but it's also a strategic intervention in a particular debate. What happened after the initial revelations, you have the Arab Spring and you have some uh, spyware companies being associated with this, so hacking team being the most uh, well-known. You then have an attempt to export control regulation on both sides of the Atlantic to stop spyware being sold to authoritarian regimes. This export control met significant resistance from the cybersecurity industry saying, well, actually, if you control spyware, you control the tools that we need to do our jobs in actually securing systems, right? You're stopping us improving security rather than helping cybersecurity. And this way, here's where the NGOs come in, here's where Citizen Lab comes in, they say, no, actually, 
this kind of export control is a cybersecurity protection. What it does is it protects the cybersecurity of the individual, whatever its effects might be on penetration testing or something else. Right? So they, they act as experts. They do um, sort of engage in these industry debates about export control, but the overall framing is they're trying to shift the meaning of cybersecurity from something that is organizational state-based to something that is individual rights-based. And that's to some way success, successful, right? It's successful because now that's an obvious thing to do. So they've done it, they've managed to make that shift, but it's not that successful in the debate itself. The export control debate rumbles on, states are still very reluctant to clamp down on spyware sales, even when they include it in their legislation, right? So these sales keep on going, new companies like NSO Group crop up, and especially in countries like Israel, there are real diplomatic reasons for continuing to sell to the Gulf states as much as there are highly obvious commercial ones where they sell it for maybe 10 times as they would elsewhere. But, but as you mentioned, the, the interconnections between uh, these private companies and, uh, and the state, whether it's in Israel or in the Gulf or elsewhere, are mm -hmm. kind of hard to disentangle. I mean, they're, they're so intimately connected that what is, a, what is independent and what is state isn't really obvious. No, so one of the big um, uh, fissures between the companies is whether they are responsible for what their technologies do, right? Everyone recognizes that there are human rights abuses, human rights violations associated with some users of these technologies, some state clients who buy these technologies. Initially, the spyware companies want to say, well, we're not involved, right? We're just the providers of the technology. It's like providing bricks to prisons, right? We don't, we, we're not, we don't control what they're used for. And that starts to break down. The more that people peer into how the technology works, how the spyware works, and crucially, the kind of relationship these companies have with their clients. They provide troubleshooting, they provide support, they help targeting support. So if the client can't use it properly, they will do everything but point and click, right? So they will make sure it's installed properly, this kind of thing. So they have a lot of insight and they can monitor, they say we can uh, detect misuse, right? And we can stop a client uh, once it's misused our software. Well, how do they detect misuse if they can't know right. what their technologies are doing, right? It's kind of contradictory. And so what you have, uh, this increasingly clo obvious close relationship between these companies and the states they provide for, to the extent that some uh, media reports even suggested that once hacking team was uh, had its reputation really uh, scattered, it had leaks against it, it had a lot of um, uh, bad press, that it might have been bought by someone connected to a Saudi investor. Right. So these, this is a client stepping in to say we actually really need this technology. Maybe we can uh, help out financially. And the other thing that uh, I want to highlight in this space is that these big name players are what we see on the news all the time, right? We see the stories about hacking team. We see the stories about NSO group. What doesn't get um, as much attention is the fact that this is just the tip of a broader industry, right? There are many, maybe less sophisticated, maybe uh, not as high end players, but they're still there, right? So there are lots of other players coming around and I trace a few of them in the chapter. And the other one is that we often think about the recipients of this technology as the state. Right, we see NSO groups selling to Saudi Arabia or the UAE, but they're not. They're selling to specific agencies. And there's also a competitive market at that side as well. Right, So you have different agencies within these states, not necessarily talking to each other, not necessarily working together, but all competing, all trying to buy the same software. And this comes out very strongly in the hacking team leaks. Right? The hacking team are selling to maybe four or five different agencies in Oman on its own. Right, And they're all trying to sell um, their software, they're always trying to purchase the same software, let alone in the rest of the Gulf. Right? So once you get into, again, the political economy of 
this industry, what comes out are really um, fascinating revelations about how the industry works beyond the headlines. You know, and, and one of the things which is really uh, telling about all of this is that you, you actually do see now uh, European and even American, uh, uh, you know, governments, you know, declaring this to be national security threat and leveling sanctions. And clearly, the the extent of the revelations about the targeting and the exploits um, have kind of vindicated that discourse of it being a cybersecurity threat. Yeah, exactly. And over the last year, is there's really been a sea change in. Um, US and European attitudes to spyware from uh, the European Parliament, which has long tried to um, push heavier regulation, now to um, the Biden administration, uh, including an SO group on its list of sanctions, but also US corporations, Apple and Facebook, which owns WhatsApp, uh, initiating legal proceedings against an SO group. That's just as damaging as the state sanctions themselves. And this is hopefully maybe a turning point, right? Maybe we'll look back at this as sort of there being a, a free for all in spyware uh, up until 2020, 2022, and then maybe a more uh, tightly regulated, uh, better controlled market after that. So one last topic that we can get into for this last little bit then is, um, you know, so we've been talking mostly at, to this point about kind of interstate and um, kind of transnational uses of these technologies. But of course, a big part of it is domestic control. And, uh, you know, we worked on this project last year together on this digital authoritarianism and just the really rapid spread of the use of these surveillance technologies within countries, over their own citizens, and all of this. Tell us a little bit more about that, the cybersecurity laws and the ways in which states are using these digital um, tools to control their own societies. Definitely. So this is how uh, the, again, to go back to the frame of the book, the idea of cybersecurity, the concept of cybersecurity, becomes one of a national information environment. We have to secure our national borders, our national territory, uh, in cyberspace as well. And this means monitoring for threats, for potential uh, dangers to the regime coming from inside rather than maybe coming from foreign uh, outsiders. And the way that uh, authoritarian regimes in general, and especially Egypt and the Gulf states do this after the Arab Spring, especially after um, President Sisi comes to power, you have the um, Muslim Brotherhood presidency and interregnum, and then you have the return of the military authoritarian state in Egypt. And this is really facilitated by the advancement of national monitoring technologies. These aren't hacking technologies, right? These aren't uh, intrusion into people's devices, bypassing or hacking into them. But this is at a national scale, the more passive uh, collection and monitoring and analysis of data. Exactly, mass collection of that, of, of internet-based data, right, maybe it's, mm-hmm. and this has enabled uh, technology, and I'll come to talk about that in a bit, but it's first of all enabled uh, through a legal regime that says we need to have access to this data for national security purposes. And so you have, as I mentioned at the start, the idea of a cybercrime uh, and or cyber terrorist uh, piece of content being something that could be used extremely widely, right? This idea of criminal or terrorist in these states is an extremely broad definition. The cyber version of that means that these cyber crime laws enable states to collect a lot of data about their citizens and uh, enact quite heavy criminalized punishments for anything that is um, uh, in these laws, which goes against 
uh, what is desirable political speech in the regime. Which, which can be as little as a tweet about Yemen. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, uh, uh, something about the, the, the ruler or the ruler's family or another state, you know, if you're in Saudi Arabia, it could be something about Bahrain or vice versa. This is an extremely heavily regulated uh, space. And increasingly so, right? You have some of these states have cybercrime laws already, right? They okay, they have them early on. They and in the in the chapter I follow the story of a international convention on cybercrime, the Budapest uh, Convention, which is then adopted and changed to become an Arab convention just before the Arab Spring, with some slightly looser language on cybercrime. And then whenever it gets implemented into these national laws, it gets looser still. And every update you have, I think the latest ones uh, in the UAE were just a few months ago, uh, the penalties get heavier, the, uh, the scope of the law gets wider. And this is a real trend that we see worldwide, and especially in the region. Now, that's the legislative framework behind this idea of cybersecurity as a national information environment. Now, when we move to the technologies, again, we have to move from state agencies, which are a fascinating story, right? There's uh, national state cybersecurity agencies, which are very much uh, involved in this kind of monitoring. And I trace the emergence of different agencies and their evolution and their political uh, or bureaucratic wrangling uh, in the chapter. But we also have to look at, again, industry, right? We look at telecoms companies, we look at specialized companies who provide this kind of software. And there, for me, one of the most fascinating insights of the chapter is that this is not a uh, morally uniform space. Right, you have uh, state actors, you have telecoms companies, and you have surveillance providers, each trying to find their own way about what they think they should do for cybersecurity reasons and what they're required to do as well. So some cybersecurity, uh, some surveillance providers that spoke to me said, well, you know, sometimes we feel a little bit uncomfortable with what we're asked to do. You know, and eventually they did it anyway because the commercial incentive was there, but they, you know, in, installed some safeguards, tried to work around things so they felt a little bit better about it, right? So this is something that we don't see in open data at all. We don't see anywhere else. And I'm really trying to capture that fine-grained uh, contest and deliberation over what should be done in the name of cybersecurity in this context of surveillance. Now, the high end, you know, some people have argued that the ultimate goal of this in places like the UAE uh, would be something like the China model, where you have almost the complete digitization of social life with the state having basically visibility yeah. into virtually all of it. That would be one model. You know, the China model is definitely very attractive. But then even the China model, right, has some commercial aspect, right? The UAE especially wants to become uh, attractive for global capital for big businesses, not only from China, but also from the rest of the world as well, right? And these businesses require certainty. They require data protection requirements. They require um, guarantees that their uh, data and their servers and their infrastructure will be treated in a certain way. So that uh, real impetus for the state to have overriding control for to be able to collect everything goes against not only the individual rights that you might have um, uh, really uh, championed and curtailed in the Chinese or an Emirati context, but also their commercial incentives to try and be open to the world as well. Well, this is all really fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, James, thanks for talking to us about this uh, important book and uh, we look forward to seeing uh, where you go with it from here. Thanks very much, yeah. Uh, thanks for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to be here and yeah, let's take this research, hopefully as far as cybersecurity goes in the next few years. Mm -hmm.
This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's topical segment, we're going to talk to Cinzia Bianco, the Gulf Research Fellow at the European Council of Foreign Relations, about the Gulf and the Ukraine crisis. Uh, Cinzia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So in a nutshell, what can you tell us about how the major Gulf allies of the United States have dealt with uh, this sudden crisis? Generally speaking, their main tendency is is to try to stay out of the Ukraine crisis. Um, The Gulf monarchies look at what what is going on in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is something distant and has um, a conflict that they would rather not be involved into. Um, That has led to a number of uh, inconsistencies and behaviors that have caught a lot of uh, uh, partners in the West by surprise. It's been quite surprising to see that some of our closest allies in the Middle East have basically been on the other side of this, you know, this defining system defining conflict. Yeah, I think um, the main issue here is that uh, from the Gulf monarchy's point of view, especially some of them, what they're trying to say is that they want to be neutral in this crisis. Um, They don't uh, behave in in ways that uh, would uh, want to suggest that they would want to side with Russia, but at the same time, they're not siding with the United States. I think the real question here is, is it really possible to be neutral in such a monumental crisis, a watershed moment, the first time that the multipolar world order is tested by a rival of the West, the United States and the, and the Europeans, um, in ways that are frankly uh, unprecedented in the very recent history of, of Europe. And I guess the question uh, will be answered in the coming weeks, but it looks like neutrality will not really be an easy option for any country, uh, especially a con- country that are considered and treated as partners, as strategic partners by the West, such as the Gulf monarchies. Well, why don't we start with uh, the United Arab Emirates, because they just have the good fortune of holding the chair of the UN Security Council. And um, tell us how they've tried to navigate this conflict. I mean, the UAE is a clear case of extreme hedging. Um, They're trying to uh, wiggle into the space for maneuvering, for um, hedging, for uh, trying to uh, sit sitting on the fence really um, and not picking sides. Um, But uh, that has led already to some uh, quite uh, noticeable um, events and incidents. So the UAE obviously abstained on the first um, UN Security Council resolution, which was sponsored by the United States, but had 80 co-sponsors. So that was a clear display of an international consensus opposing the Russian aggressions uh, on on Ukraine. And the UAE still decided to abstain, even after the US uh, ambassador to the the United Nations made it clear that an abstention was de facto uh, a, a support for Russian aggression uh, in Ukraine. Um, That abstention was actually in line with two other um, major international actors, India and especially China. 
And that is how sort of the UAE has justified its uh, choices by saying that uh, they have, uh, they are also an Asian powers. They're looking east more and more, and they feel uh, they are entitled to align with the Asian partners um, if they don't feel that their uh, national interests are at stake in a crisis, as, as they don't feel that these national interests are at stake in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Famously, back in 1990, 1991, um, when Yemen abstained from the UN Security Council vote over the Gulf War, uh, Jim Baker said that's the most expensive veto they'll ever cast. But the U.S. isn't really in a position to make those kinds of, of threats anymore. I mean, so far, um, the U.S. is um, in an uncomfortable position vis-a-vis -vis the Gulf monarchies, um, especially vis-a-vis -vis the United Arab Emirates, uh, which, of course, is a close partner for, for Washington. And uh, that has also been uh, a helpful partner in uh, several cases and dossiers, uh, both if you look at investment into the U.S., economic relations more broadly, but also geopolitics. The U.S. is basically uh, trying to share um, some of the burdens associated with being a uh, major geopolitical actor in the region with its partners. That means uh, relinquishing some responsibilities onto trusted regional partners, and that definitely includes the UAE. So that puts the US in a quite uncomfortable position uh, where they are not um, fully at liberty of retaliating against the UAE for an abstention vote on, on a, uh, UN Security Council resolution on, on Russia. And we had the proof already, um, some evidence of that, uh, because the US, of course, could not uh, veto uh, the resolution that the UAE sponsored and that passed at the United Nations uh, just uh, yesterday on uh, February 28, uh, renewing the arms embargo against uh, the Houthis, the Yemeni rebels, and also sort of the, for the first time um, officially describing the group as a terrorist group, although that's broadly inconsequential from an international law point of view, but that's symbolic and politically it has value. So we have seen already how the US has a, sort of a limited space for a, a strong reaction against the UAE, but at the same time, that may not be the case uh, necessarily in the future should things escalate further and should the UAE give new um, signals and signs that they are not supporting the US and the West against Russia. Now let's shift over uh, to you know the, the, the big player in the GCC, uh, Saudi Arabia. United States asked uh, Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, to increase oil production to try and deal with uh, the impact of the, of the war on global oil supplies. And at this point, uh, Saudi Arabia said no. Yeah, um, there is another uh, meeting which is going to be quite interesting on uh, uh, March the 2nd. Um, it's an OPEC plus meeting where Saudi Arabia again will have the chance of taking a stance and saying whether they are ready to uh, raise oil output further to tr drive down uh, prices um, or the, if they want to stick with the OPEC plus deal that they signed with Russia uh, in 2020 uh, and therefore if the oil prices will continue to stay as high as they are right now or even higher above $100 a barrel. That would be extremely problematic for um, the United States 
States uh, because it, it sort of uh, reflects negatively on the stability of the American economy, but also it would be very problematic in the context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, Russia relies on oil export revenues uh, for a large chunk of its budget, and therefore those revenues de facto enable Russia to uh, maintain uh, and even step up military operations against Ukraine. So there are now two different layers and two different reasons why the Saudi strategy is very problematic for the United States and for Europe at the same time. Um, and uh, what we have seen uh, in uh, 2020, for example, was that when Saudi Arabia felt its own national interest was at stake, they engaged in an actual uh, oil prices war with Russia, when they even threatened the Russian uh, market shares in Eastern Europe. Um, and that was extremely an extremely effective strategy, although it was very costly for Saudi Arabia, it delivered results quite quickly. So I guess that was an, sort of a precedent of what Saudi Arabia could really do if they were uh, actually uh, um, willing to support uh, the US and Europe um, actions to constrain Russia uh, economically and financially. Meanwhile, uh, Qatar has made another choice, uh, stepping in as a major alternative gas supplier uh, to European countries that are so heavily dependent on Russian oil, uh, Russian gas. Yeah, um, so the, the case of Qatar is also quite interesting because on one end, they have shown some availability to support um, uh, the European energy security in the case of a disruption of Russian deliveries. At the same time, they've been um, sort of quite reluctant to uh, go all in in that sense. Um, they have, they're hesitant to say that they could single-handedly support European energy security. The truth is it would be extremely complicated for Qatar, that's for sure, but it would be technically possible because Qatar is of course a major gas supplier. So there's also some other diplomatic work to be done with Doha um, and the Americans and the Europeans are already doing some work in that direction. But it certainly looks promising, although complex. So putting this all together then, you know, this is not a new thing. We've been talking about, you know, the, 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 the rise of multipolarity in the region, how it's been shaping the foreign policy behavior of the Gulf states, uh, a lot of the you know, kind of independent behavior of these states and their decoupling from U.S. Uh, security strategy over the last decade. How does this look to you when, you when you kind of look at the big picture? Is this a defining moment that is really kind of reshaping the security architecture of the Gulf? Or is this hedging really just about keeping their heads down and waiting for it to pass? I mean, it's a bit of both. First of all, um, we should say that um, this, uh, what is going on is certainly a, a monumental shift in the sense that the US uh, regional position is shifting. There is uh, objectively is a US retrenchment from uh, what has been uh, traditionally uh, a predominance uh, of, uh, of the security architecture in the Gulf and um, a, a willingness to relinquish some of the responsibilities and the commitments associated with being the major external security guarantor in the Gulf. And that has triggered 
a lot of other uh, developments, of course. Um, and these developments, the ways that um, these events are analyzed by the six Gulf monarchies are arguably uh, quite divergent. There are arguably six different ways to look at what is going on. So for example, we have seen um, a Gulf, one of the Gulf monarchies, Kuwait, which uh, um, has very unequivocally uh, still uh, sort of uh, uh, renewed its commitment to the US and the Europeans and the West in general by, for example, being the only Arab country to co-sponsor the UN Security Council resolution uh, condemning Russian aggression of Ukraine. Then we have seen um, Oman that, you know, as usual, as it is traditional in their foreign policy, um, trying to uh, draw, draw an independent course of action that uh, sort of tries to minimize the impact of these shifts, but uh, very cautious of uh, really uh, citing and changing uh, their behavior uh, significantly, while actually preferring to maintain a more linear uh, behavior. And then there are the, the three uh, bigger players that we talked about, Qatar, UAE, and Saudi Arabia. And for, you know, also within those three, there are definitely differences. The UAE is in a moment of arguably overconfidence. Um, the way that they look uh, at the region is the region, the US is going to leave a vacuum by retrenching and that vacuum is going to be filled by other global uh, players such as Russia and China, but also other regional players such as, for example, Turkey and Iran. And then what is what does that mean for their own position? Um, in their view, it means that they should be uh, free to uh, hedge between these two, these different players um, in ways that uh, maximizes space for autonomous uh, uh, foreign policy to to the extent that it is that it is possible, and that means they're not really afraid to take risks. Um, I think Saudi Arabia is on a similar page, but probably less confident than the UAE. Um, they are still more uh, dependent on uh, uh, US uh, security support, uh, and they are still, they still feel, feel more exposed to the uh, dangers that could come out of a multipolar uh, chaotic world. Uh, for example, if some of the uh, space uh, the, of the vacuum is filled by um, Turkey and, and especially by Iran, what does that mean for their own sphere of influence? Would they have to defend it on their own? Um, I think, you know, the Saudis are still trying to keep the Americans engaged um, as much as possible. And when they do react in the way that we have seen uh, in the uh, past couple of weeks vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia and Ukraine, I think they're also acting uh, pushed and, and driven by frustration vis-a-vis uh, -vis the U.S. because they would prefer to keep the U.S. engaged. Um, and to a certain extent, they're still hoping that perhaps there is a different administration in 2024 and things could change again. And then finally, we have Qatar. Qatar, um, uh, it's unique because they already sort of feel that they have weathered 
uh, a different uh, situation of the uh, global geopolitics associated with the Gulf uh, when they were subjected to a political boycott and economic embargo in 2017 by Saudi Arabia, the UAE and other regional players. And so that was the defining moment for them. And they've sort of tried to design a strategy that works for them that um, is to uh, not confrontational as uh, sometimes uh, the UAE strategy comes across, not overconfident, uh, but more um, safe, safer in a sense, more stable, aligning, aligned uh, with uh, um, specific players such as Turkey and trying to be consistent in their, in their behaviors without sort of provoking uh, too much of a reaction or a blowback from uh, other, other global and regional players. Well, it'll be interesting to see if they can, if all of these players can sustain these policies as uh, as the lines harden and as the as the crisis escalates. Uh, Cynthia, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you so much. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's topical segment, we're joined by Howard Eisenstock, associate professor of history at St. Lawrence University and a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute. Howard, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Mark, good to be with you. So let's talk about Turkey and how it is navigating the uh, crisis that's broken out between uh, Ukraine and Russia, and uh, how, how is it managing this extremely difficult position that it's in? Yeah, and I guess, I guess the first thing to say is it really is in a difficult position. Turkey uh, enters into this crisis uh, facing its worst economic crisis in, in 20 years, um, uh, the AKP MHP government uh, is uh, starting to think about elections in 2023, uh, and uh, it's less popular than it's been at any point uh, uh, in in recent years. Um, it's facing, you know, domestically without the without the foreign policy issues, it is facing its most difficult. Uh, uh, political environment since the attempted coup of, of 2016. Um, and that that really defines uh, how it approaches these things. The other, the other thing that, that is sort of definitional in the conflict is, is that uh, Turkey, Turkey's elite uh, has been looking to develop a more um, aggressive profile in the region. It has uh, attempted to break out of the constraints of uh, uh, its NATO alliance. This is not something that that is only from the AKP. This has been going on really since since uh, uh, the end of the Cold War. Uh, and so, you know, there there is some sympathy uh, for uh, what we can call counter-hegemonic processes, whether it's the rise of Russia or the rise of China, uh, that you know Turkey sees itself as part of that process of moving to a multipolar world where the West is less important. Uh, and so between these two things, Turkey is in a sense looking at Russia facing off with NATO uh, sympathetically. At the same time, it is uh, it wants to keep its good standing uh, with NATO. It accrues significant benefit from NATO. And uh, both Russia and Ukraine are really important trading partners 
And, and so there's an element of risk uh, for Turkey that is uh, really acute. And so it has to balance you know, its ties with Russia, its ties with Ukraine, and its ties with NATO sort of all at the same time. And one of the things which is really interesting there is that uh, perhaps to, uh, to Putin's uh, surprise, NATO and all of Europe have broken very, very hard in support of Ukraine under American leadership, whereas much of the Middle East um, has actually either remained neutral or actively inclined towards Russia, and Turkey's caught in the middle. Sure. And I, and I think that, you know, um, for Turkey, I, I think that what Turkey's tried to do is, is cut the difference by um, sort of doing minimal stuff in terms of actual policy implementation that will affect Russia, uh, because it's very wary of uh, the costs of angering Russia. It, it, it's had bad experience in facing off with Russia in the past. Uh, and at the same time, sort of giving uh, very vocal support to uh, its NATO allies and to Ukraine uh, at, at sort of uh, let's call it the moral level or, or the rhetorical level. Well, let's talk about Turkey's relations with Russia. I mean, over the last decade, we've seen some really sharp ups and downs. They were on the other, opposite sides of the war in Syria. Uh, there was the incident with the shooting down of the Russian jet. And yet there's been ups and downs in that relationship. Sure. So what is Turkey bringing to the table then when it's looking at Russia behaving this way? So I think... Um, I think that that uh, Turkey and Russia have certainly had, uh, even since they sort of mended ties um, uh, in in uh, uh, twenty sixteen, um, I think that Turkey and Russia have had a really complicated relationship. They are important trading partners. They have lots of cooperation. Uh, Turkey. Uh, has probably put itself more at risk over uh, in this current crisis because it is so reliant on uh, Russia for for both wheat and for natural gas. Um, it, it is uh, reliant on on Russia for 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 tourism dollars, a really important part of the Turkish economy. Um, they've they've. They've sort of been on other sides, as you note, in Syria, uh, also in Libya. Uh, the at the same time, uh, they've they've sort of created this sort of bro relationship between Erdogan and and Putin. Erdogan clearly um, finds Putin's uh, Putin's machismo and Putin's leadership sort of an attractive model, and we've seen within the Turkish elite, a, a real sympathy for the idea of, uh, of an assertive, aggressive foreign policy that reaches out and forces uh, the West to accept its interests, the kind of uh, two-fisted uh, foreign policy that Putin has, has used is, has been very attractive to to uh, Turkey. And even if there's been sort of a reset in the last six months, Turkey's sort of followed suit. And it, um, as I said earlier, uh, Turkey, like, like Russia, uh, has, sees 
sees uh, the West as a uh, a hegemon in decline, and you know are, they're looking at what is the new world order going to look like, and they both assumed that the new world order would have the West less dominant, would be more uh, uh, would be more ad hoc in its relationships, uh, uh, and would uh, allow for uh, new regional powers. And we've seen Turkey, like Russia, reach out to, to expand its, its military profile, to expand its uh, military sales, and to expand its diplomacy, and not just in the Middle East, but you know throughout the world. So probably the most um, high profile thing that Turkey has done over this over the, the week of the crisis thus far is the, its uh, announcement that it might invoke the Montreux Agreement. And uh, what effect would that actually have? Is it actually doing it? I mean, what's your analysis of of all of this? So uh, it, it the uh, the Montreux Agreement uh, gives Turkey uh, significant flexibility uh, in in how it uh, how it approaches uh, uh, ships passing through the Turkish Straits. It has uh, it has invoked it uh, sort of late in the game, and uh, it's I, I think in material terms for the the war in, between Russia and Ukraine, uh, it's going to have no real effect. Uh, there, Russia has already put its pieces into play uh, for uh, the invasion of Ukraine. It's already uh, moved uh, ships, including um, uh, amphibious vessels, uh, uh, through the straits. Um, and so invoking it now, in a material sense, doesn't do Russia any harm. What about like resupply? Uh, uh, well, it, it may have relevance for Russia's uh, uh, position in Syria, and that that's kind of an interesting uh, uh, aspect. If the war goes long, uh, it it might have uh, effect. But Turkey can allow ships through. Uh, Russia could use civilian vessels for resupply, uh, and uh, the uh, uh, by the time Syria Syrian force Russian forces in Syria do need that resupply, it's likely that. Uh, uh, the the importance of the Black Sea and the conflict with Ukraine is is going to be uh, irrelevant. But but for the conflict in, uh, in in Ukraine, it's it's not going to make a difference. The, uh, the pieces are all in place. In terms of uh, we, you, go you, ahead. you mentioned in terms of uh, the relationship with Russia that tourism is a big deal. And there's this trend all around for boycotting Russia, cutting them off from finances. Um, this has got to be pretty worrisome for a Turkish economy already facing real problems. It, it really is. And, and I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to understate uh, I, uh, 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 how important it is for Turkey to sort of stay on Russia's good side at this particular juncture. Uh, and and that's, that's, I think, that's, I think, what goes to the core of, of Turkey's decision to to invoke the Montreux Convention is that it didn't do any real harm to Putin, but it it was loud. It was, it was a noisy sort of uh, policy that got lots of attention. It got headlines around the world. Uh, it gave you know the United States thanked 
Turkey for uh, for invoking the convention. Ukraine uh, thanked Turkey for invoking the convention. So it it did exactly sort of what Turkey needs, which is to do to have minimal harm to Russia because the costs of of in antagonizing Putin are very high, while at the same time doing something sort of demonstrably supportive of Ukraine and its NATO allies. Okay, well, maybe one last question then, as we start thinking about things that uh, that Turkey might or might not be doing, is uh, we've seen some talk of Turkish drones uh, being deployed on the battlefield. And of course, Turkey's had great success using these drones in places like Azerbaijan and, and uh, Libya. Um, Ethiopia. Um, so what do you see happening there in terms of uh, Turkey and Ukraine's military uh, defense? Great. So there, there is a contract to produce more drones, uh, but, but that's, of course, in the future, and it requires Ukraine to, to sort of be around and, and be uh, uh, to, to survive long enough to, to, to participate in the contract. I, I mean, I'm not in any position to assess the efficacy of the drones that are there in the military. We, we've all seen sort of the videos and, and that's uh, impressive, but I'm not an expert in, uh, on military affairs now, so I'll leave it to them. Um, there, are, there are a limited number of drones and, and the experts say that they're, they've been useful. Um, those drones were sold to Ukraine before the conflict began. And they're part of, you know, Turkey's uh, uh, sold drones to, maybe a score uh, countries, right? That they're trying to build their their uh, military export industry. And, and I saw, I think that we can best see the drone sales to Ukraine, not as an anti-Russian thing, but rather as uh, Turkey being ambitious to expand its, its military export industry. Uh, that said, if Turkey decides to resupply drones or sell more drones to Ukraine during the conflict, that would be a very, very big deal. Um, it's, it's possible it will happen. We've seen news sources sort of suggest it will happen. Um, I am waiting to see how that develops. If, if it happens, it's a big deal. But the truth is that Turkey hasn't closed uh, its airspace to Russian uh, planes. It, uh, uh, it hasn't uh, uh, imposed any economic sanctions and, and stated repeatedly that it will not do so. So uh, if it's not willing to do those sorts of things, it seems to me highly unlikely it's going to take the step of uh, sending uh, military, military arms to Ukraine during the conflict. Well, maybe then to, to kind of wrap up, you know, you're describing a Turkey, which is really trying to hedge and kind of hedge in a direction where it you know, sends nice signals to the West, but is, um, you know, kind of not doing anything serious to Russia. But, you know, the, we're seeing such an extreme polarization and, you know, this really reemergence of this bipolar with us or against us world. And I guess two questions then is, you know, can Turkey sustain this if, if NATO's asks increase and Russia also, you know, their asks increase? And then at what point does this become a political issue inside of Turkey, uh, as you said, heading towards an election next year? And uh, does this become a wedge issue of some kind? Um, so uh, in terms of polarization, um, I think that Turkey, I think, first of all, Turkey's Western allies understand uh, uh, the economic straits 
uh, and are going to be disinclined to ask Turkey to do something that it, it's, it simply can't do. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's, it's certainly possible that, that Turkey will be forced into a hard choice, but I, it would strike me that, that uh, Washington and Brussels are going to be disinclined to for, try to force Ankara into a hard choice where they don't know the answer. Um, yeah. The uh, as to the election, I think the the real issue for the election is is frankly the economy, and uh, this conflict, Ukraine and Russia are both important uh, uh, trade partners for Turkey. This is only going to intensify Turkey's economic dire straits. Uh, this, I don't think it's it's. I think it's less of a foreign policy issue per se. Uh, than an economic issue. And I think for, for the current government, uh, any bad news on the economy is really, really bad news. Well, great. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Howard, and uh, looking forward to checking again soon. Thanks, Mark.